Last year, in a blog that he wrote for the Huffington Post, a a, a spiritual teacher by the name of Dr. Steve McSwain wrote this about the Bible. He said, none of the biblical stories, including the ones where Jesus is depicted as defying the laws of nature and performing miracles, as in walking on water, giving sight to the blind, or most amazingly, raising dead people back to life, None of those were recorded as factual or literal eyewitness accounts. And even if they were, they cannot be depicted as such today if you want any of it to be believed, to be respected, or to be read with any seriousness. Now, if you're new to City Church, or maybe you're catching us this morning on our app or our podcast and want to welcome you, we've been, this is the last week of a series that we have been in called I Have My Doubts, in which we've been responding each week to one of six very common, very significant doubts or objections that people have about the claims of Christianity. And we have dealt so far with absolutism, we've dealt with exclusivity, we've dealt with injustice, we've dealt with evil and suffering, and we've dealt with hell. And today we're going to wrap up this series with what I think is the most significant objection, the most important objection of all to the claims of Christianity, the doubt or the objection that's evidenced in that excerpt from that blog that I just wrote you. And it's the objection to taking the Bible literally. And the reason that I think this is the most significant objection of all the ones that we've covered is that this strikes right at the heart of the source material of Christianity. If the Bible isn't true, uh, if it's not reliable, if its meaning is subjective and not objective, then Christianity really has no basis for its claims. So I think we have to take this objection, this doubt, very, very seriously. And it's one, quite frankly, that you hear very frequently. I am often asked the question, you don't really take the Bible literally, do you? And if you listen closely enough, I think what you hear behind that objection is the belief that the Bible may have some good things to say, but there are just some things in the Bible that are are, just wrong historically. Uh, in other words, uh, people think, well, there's, there are legends in the Bible. Much of it is culturally regressive. And so while some of it is good, we must not insist that it be taken literally. In fact, McSwain goes on in his blog to say this. He says, it has always been and always will be what the Bible says to you, in you, and through you that matters most. When literalists finally get this, if they ever do, then the Bible will live again. There's no future for the Bible, however, where a literalist reading of the text is the only option, period. Now, what do we say to that objection, this doubt that many people have, perhaps even some of you have, about the Bible and taking its claims literally? Is McSwain right that it's really not that important what the Bible means? It's just that it's important what it produces in you. Or does it matter that we take it literally? Is the Bible historically unreliable? Is it culturally unreliable? Can you trust it? In fact, here's what I want to do. I want, I want to use those questions, those four questions, as, my, uh, as the sort of outline, the structure for my comments this morning. First, should we take the Bible literally? We'll answer that question. Second, can we trust the Bible historically? Third, can we trust the Bible culturally? And then finally, can we, can I... Trust the Bible personally. Those are, that's sort of going to be the, the big outline for what I'm going to say this morning. And so if you would, uh, just turn in your Bibles. I want you, to, I want you to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And then uh, just be ready uh, to turn to the end of the book, to Luke chapter 24 later on. Okay? Luke chapter 1, though, is where you're going to start, and just, just hold your finger there. Now, if you're new here, I'm on a campaign. I just, let, me, let me just tell you, if you're new here to this church, I'm on a campaign to get everybody in this church uh, to bring a Bible to church. Now, it can be a hard copy. It can be a digital version of the Bible, but I'm on a campaign to get everybody here, and we're getting better at that every week. I'm proud of you guys. Uh, keep up the good work. Somebody told me a couple weeks ago that they brought their Bible, but they forgot it in the car. And I was like, well, that's progress. We're still okay with that. Now, just next time, get it here. Get it in. Just remember to bring it in. Thank you guys for doing that. Keep up the good work. I'm really proud of you. For those of you who are new, though, we're going to put the verses uh, up on the screen. Okay. While you're turning to Luke chapter 1, let me just start by quickly answering the first question. Because to be honest with you, we really, uh, we really don't need and can't use the Bible to answer this first question. Here's the first question. Should we take the Bible literally? And the answer to that is yes. We should take the Bible in the same way that we take any other form of communication. Literally. I find this to be a confusing question. Should we take the Bible literally? I find it confusing because I'm not sure what the alternative is to taking it literally. If you don't take it literally, how do you take it? I mean, we interpret all forms of communication literally. We, we, we have to. If we don't interpret things literally, then all communication breaks down. Imagine a world in which uh, we interpret all forms of communication like a piece of abstract art, where we just look at it and we say, well, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to you. And so you tell your teenager in no uncertain terms, your curfew tonight, is, it's midnight. And she says, well, you know what, I don't take that literally. What that means to me is 3 a.m. How would you like that? I mean, would that work? Would a world like that work? How would, you know, I wonder how would Dr. McSwain like it if I wrote to him and said, look, you know, I'm not really interpreting your blog literally, so I take it to mean that you really do believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Would that work? I mean, would he appreciate that? See, we interpret all forms of communication literally, and of course the Bible's no different. We don't interpret the Bible any differently than we interpret a novel or the Constitution or an email from a friend or a ticket from a police officer. We interpret all those the same, literally. Now here's where I think people get confused in this question. They would say, okay, well, like in the Bible, for instance, Jesus calls Herod a wily fox. And they would say, well, if you interpret that literally, doesn't that mean that you believe Herod was a four-legged animal with a tail? And I would say, only if you're from Kentucky. Because the rest of us understand that Jesus was using a metaphor to convey a literal meaning. That Herod was cunning, that he was tricky, that he was sneaky, that he was not to be trusted. That's what Jesus was trying to convey. And it's literal. We, we interpret that literally. Now, it was a metaphor. We understand a literal interpretation doesn't mean that you can't see uh, figures of speech uh, in the Bible or in, the, in a novel or in anything else for that matter. But you just understand he's trying to convey a meaning and we take the meaning that he's trying to convey literally. All right? So yes, of course we take the Bible literally, just like any other form of communication. And if we don't take it literally, then it has no meaning, because in effect, it means anything that anyone wants it to mean. And then it has no meaning, okay? All right, so second question, can we trust the Bible historically? What you often hear from people today is that the stories about Jesus in the Gospels, the miracles, the cross, the resurrection, all of that stuff is just legend. It's, it was handed down from people. And so we can't really know 
what is true and what isn't true about Jesus. Now, I want to give you uh, two responses, two quick responses to that question. And there, I mean, there are many others, but I only have time for two today. And here's, here are the two responses. Okay, the first one is this. Yes, we can trust the Bible historically because the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written too early to be legends. So yes, we can trust them because the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written too early to be legends. Now, I want you to look at what Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Notice, and I've highlighted the words up there, among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, whoever that was, okay, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now, did you notice what Luke is saying here? He's saying, yes, there have been stories about Jesus handed down to us, but they came from people who were eyewitnesses and who are still alive. Okay? So like Luke is writing, the Gospel of Luke, he's writing it only 30 to 40 years after the events that he's going to describe in the Gospel of Luke. And so he went to people who saw these things happen firsthand. Like he didn't go to people who heard about them generations and generations and generations away from the events. He went to people who were alive when Jesus was alive. And he said, did this really happen? And he checked it out. And this person to whom Luke was writing, Theophilus, uh, he, he could fact check uh, everything Luke said. Kind of like, like the NBC anchor Brian Williams is getting fact checked about some of his stories right now, right? People could go fact check everything that Luke said, okay? Because most of the people were still alive during that period of time. Now, let me just tell you. Uh, the Apostle Paul comes along, and he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And you may not know this, but the book of 1 Corinthians was written even closer to the life of Jesus, the events of the life of Jesus, than even the Gospel of Luke. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's writing about Jesus' resurrection. He says, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And notice what he says most of whom are still living. Now understand, he's saying, here's the claim that Paul is making, that a man rose from the dead. Now look, you could, you could write that 200 or 300 years after the event and, and probably get away with it, especially back then when people couldn't do all the fact-checking that people can do today. But you couldn't say that Jesus was crucified on the most brutal Roman execution method imaginable and then came back from the dead and get away with it if it wasn't true when most of the people were still alive who saw it. You couldn't have done that. Christianity could have never gotten off the ground. So yes, we can trust the Bible uh, historically, because the accounts of the life of Jesus and the accounts of things that happened were too early to be legends. Okay, here's the second thing. Okay, under this same umbrella, can we trust the Bible historically? Here's the second point I want to make to you. Yes, we can trust the Bible historically because 
the accounts of Jesus are too counterproductive to be legends. They're too counterproductive to be legends. Now, let me explain what I mean. Many people feel that the Bible doesn't actually tell you what happened. You just have what all of the church leaders wanted you to believe happened to consolidate their power, uh, to give uh, authority uh, to their positions, right, and to build their movement. That, in fact, that's what Dan Brown uh, was saying in his book, The Da Vinci Code, of a few years back, okay? But I want you to just think about this for a moment. If that were the case, if you were a leader of this movement that you knew was false, wouldn't you want to edit out some of the things in the New Testament that were unflattering about you and about your faith? Okay, so let me give you, let me give you some examples. Like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, he's uh, praying and he's, he's sweating blood and, and he, says, he says, take this cup from me. That doesn't sound so heroic, does it? Wouldn't you want to edit that out? Or like when he's hanging on a cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wouldn't you want to edit that out? I mean, don't you want to think of your hero as, as somebody who just, who just went to the cross and just died and just no complaints and no, no fear, nothing, just... Wouldn't you want to think of him that way? Or how about the places in the New Testament where the disciples and the apostles, the early church leaders, who uh, Dan Brown and others would say were just trying to, you know, they were just, they were just telling you these stories so they could consolidate their power. Okay? Wouldn't they have wanted to edit out some of the places in the New Testament where they're made to look like idiots or jerks or cowards or murderers or slow of heart people? Because, I mean, there's a lot of that in the New Testament where, where you're just like, you read through the New Testament and you're like, those guys were really dumb, weren't they? Wouldn't you want to edit that out if you were one of those church leaders, right? Because they look terrible often in the New Testament. Wouldn't they have edited all of that stuff out about themselves? You see, it, it, there's too much that would be too counterproductive to the power and the authority and the credibility of the leaders of the early church if, if it's false. So the only explanation is that it all ha- actually happened. So yes, uh, we can trust the Bible historically. The events happened too soon. Uh, excuse me, the writing, the, the accounts of Jesus' life happened too soon to when it happened for it to be legend. And then second... Um, they were too counterproductive uh, to be legends that would be helpful uh, to the cause of Christ. Okay, here's our third big question that I want to answer this morning. Can we trust the Bible culturally? Can we trust the Bible culturally? Okay, look, here's the thing, and I just think we have to be very straightforward with one another about this. The Bible says so many things that are just plain offensive to people today. Things that are politically incorrect. And frankly, even to me sometimes, that seem culturally uh, regressive. And because of that, many people believe that you cannot and should not trust the Bible, and especially you can't trust it culturally. Now, I don't have time to go through all of the things that offend people about the Bible, so I just want to give you a couple of What I want to do in this point is I just want to give you a couple of principles that you can use as you encounter texts 
that make it difficult for you to believe in the Bible. And here's, here's the first principle. Under, this, under the big picture here, under the big point of can you trust the Bible culturally, let me give you this first principle. First, you must understand when you encounter a difficult text, you must understand that there is a difference between description and prescription in the Bible. I'll explain that. You must understand that there's a difference between description and prescription in the Bible. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, People read things in the Bible, and they assume that because the Bible describes something that happens, they assume that that means that it's prescribing something that should happen. For instance, one of the things that I often hear, you probably hear this, maybe you've even felt this, is that the Bible puts women down. Look at all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, people will say. They were all polygamists and misogynists. They bought and sold wives. They treated them horribly. Uh, The men were always in power over the women. The women were just, you know, kind of worthless. They were just chattel that people owned and sold and borrowed and all that stuff. So it treated treated women in the Bible horribly. That's what the Bible teaches about women, they will say. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing. Uh, It is absolutely true that many of the Old Testament heroes of the faith were polygamists. It's true. It was a universal in ancient cultures. I mean, that's just how it worked in ancient cultures. But by describing this, by saying that this person was a polygamist, it's not true that it's prescribing it as a good thing. So it describes it, but it's not prescribing it as a good thing. It's just describing the world as it was at the time. And in fact, if you will read the Bible about these men who were polygamists, you'll notice uh, at least a, a couple of things. In every generation, in every generation of those polygamists, polygamy wreaks havoc on their lives. I mean, you go back and read it yourself. In fact, we did a series that kind of touched on this uh, earlier, or I guess late last year, called The Legend of Joe Jacobson. Remember, we talked about some of this, that in every generation, in that generation, in that family, polygamy had wreaked havoc on their lives. It's an absolute disaster socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, in every way. So it's It's far from prescribing it. It simply describes it. And then it shows you the mess that it creates in their lives. If you'll just follow along, it just shows you the mess that it creates in their lives. So the Bible's not teaching that. It's describing it, but it's not teaching that. It's not prescribing that. It's not saying this is a good thing. In fact, it says it's a bad thing. One one other thing that I think you'll notice in in, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the accounts of Jesus, some of Jesus' closest followers in the Gospels and witnesses of some of his greatest miracles like his resurrection, were women. Women. In fact, I will tell you something, that the fact that some of Jesus' closest followers and the ones who witnessed, for instance, uh, who were the first to discover his, uh, that he was resurrected from the dead, uh, that would be something that would be counterproductive. You know, we were talking earlier about some of these things are too counterproductive to be legend. That would have been a counterproductive thing in that culture. Women were not respected. Women had no voice. Women had no say. And so for Jesus to allow women to be the first to discover that he was alive, that wouldn't have given any credibility to the movement. That would have been a thing that people would have wanted to edit out of the Bible if they were trying to build credibility for a movement. They would have wanted to edit that out. They didn't edit that out. Jesus actually thought very highly 
of women, if he thought poorly of them, if he was oppressive to them, why would he have spent so much time around them and made them some of his primary witnesses to his most profound miracles? You see, I think if you read the Scriptures, you will actually find that the Bible elevates women in a way that nothing in our culture does today, not even the feminist movement. Okay? So that's the first... Okay, so we're asking the question now, can we trust the Bible culturally? And I said, take this principle. When you come across difficult texts in the Bible, take this principle. Uh, the Bible may describe things, but it's not necessarily prescribing them, okay? So there's a difference between those things. Here's the second principle I want you to take when you encounter some of those tough um, passages in Scripture that make you think, man, I don't know, this seems so culturally regressive. Here it is. You must be careful about absolutizing the culture and the moment in which we live. You must be very careful when you read the Bible about absolutizing the culture and the moment in which we live. Okay, let me just stop for a minute. Are you guys with me? Are you following? Because you kind of seem like maybe you're sleepy. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay, are you with me? Yep. Just Okay, everybody, would you do me a favor? Just everybody say yes, I'm with you all at the same time. One, two, three. Okay, and, and then say there's nothing else I want to do today but listen to you. No, I'm kidding you. You don't have to say that. Okay. You got to be careful when you come across these texts. You have to be careful about absolutizing the culture and the moment in which we live. In our culture, you see, what happens is that we often read a passage of Scripture and we say, Oh my goodness, that is so regressive. And that is so offensive. But that's because in our culture, in our culture today, it's a problem. But it might not be such an issue in other cultures around the world. And it might not have been such an issue in past cultures. And it might not be a big issue in future cultures. For example, in uh, individualistic Western cultures like ours, we read the Bible, and let's just be honest, what the Bible says about sex is a terrible problem for most of us. It sounds terribly regressive, doesn't it? On the other hand, what it says about forgiveness... Well, we would say in our culture, we'd say, well, that's, yes, that's wonderful. Turn the cheek, you know, turn the, turn the other cheek, 70 times 7, forgive, you know, give your enemy the shirt off your back, all of that stuff. Yes, we would say that is sophisticated and that's progressive stuff, but the sex stuff, that's culturally regressive. All right, now I want you to do something for me. Go to the Middle East. Let's go to the Middle East. Let's all pretend like we're going to pack up, we're going to go to the Middle East. Let them read what the Bible says about sex. I think they would tell you that the Bible doesn't go far enough. It's not strict enough about sex. Okay? And regarding what the Bible says about forgiveness, they would say, that's absolutely nuts. This thing about forgiving people that do you wrong. You would be destroyed if you did anything like that. Think this past week about... uh, about Jordan's response to ISIS and the killing of a pilot, uh, of one of their pilots. What was their, what was their response? Revenge. We want revenge. We're going to get revenge. Now, I understand what they're doing, but, but you understand that's part of their culture. Now, here's the question, okay? Here, here's the question. If you're offended by something the Bible says, let's say about sex or anything else for that matter, if you're offended by something the Bible says... Why should your culture trump the sensibilities of another culture? 
Why are our sensibilities more important than the sensibilities of some other culture? Like, like if we say, you know, well, that's just, that's just regressive. We should never have to believe that. This obviously can't be God's word. It can't be truth. Why, why does our culture get to trump another culture that says, no, that, that seems pretty right. In fact, I think it should go further. Why do we get to trump them? Okay. Why get rid of the Bible because it offends your culture in your moment of time? I mean, if, I think if you think about this, if the Bible really is the revelation of God and therefore wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Therefore, wouldn't it offend your cultural sensibilities at some point? Therefore, when you read the Bible and find some part of it that's outrageous and offensive, that's probably proof that it's true. It's probably from God. It's not a reason to say, well, that's not God's Word. It's probably a reason to say, well, that must be God's Word. What makes you think that because this part or that part is offensive, you can just sort of forget it and say, let's not take that literal? Now, by the way, I want to say something else about this, okay? because we're talking about our culture and we're talking about our cultural moment. I want to say this to the younger generation. I want, I want to say this to you guys. You, I, you may not understand this yet, but your kids are going to find a lot of what you think right now absolutely embarrassing. Okay? There, I mean, just like there are things that you find embarrassing about what your parents and your grandparents think, your kids, your grandkids, they're going to find things that you think right now. They're going to go, that's embarrassing. And look, you don't think it will happen, but it will. I mean, look around. There are a lot of people in this room, like everybody in this room, well, at least some of the people in this room, used to be cool at some point in time. Like, used to be cool and hip at some point in time. They really were. At some point in time, they were cool and hip. But they're not anymore, okay? Because here is a truth that I want you to understand. You are not absolutely hip and cool. You, you, you're not. You're momentarily hip and cool. You won't be cool and hip for long. And your kids and your grandkids are going to think, think that the things that you believe and do are embarrassing. Okay, those of you who have experienced this, raise your hands, all right? Look around the room now. Those of you who are younger, look around the room. A lot of these people were cool at one point. They really were. They were happening people. Folks were like, I want to wear what he wears. I want to do what she does. I, you know, that, not anymore. And that's going to happen to you too. Understand that, okay? So for instance, perhaps, perhaps, after generations of the sexual liberation experiment that started in the 60s, and that has led to life-altering and life-threatening STDs, that's led to unwanted pregnancies, that's led to the breakdown of the family, that's led to ravaged hearts, that's led to questions about whether a drunk girl in a college frat house can really consent to sex, that's led to claims of date rape that go wrongly unprosecuted, and claims of date rape that have wrongly imprisoned men who were certain that consent occurred, What if a generation or two from now, people take another look 
at what the Bible has to say about sex? What if they take a look at that and they decide that the Bible really did have something to say after all, and they decide that the Bible's view of sex actually elevates and dignifies the act of sex? They might look at your views about sex today and say, how in the world could you have thought that having sex with multiple people outside the boundaries of marriage, how did you think that made sense? Mom, who convinced you to do something like that? Why did you have such a low view of sex, Mom, and so little self-respect? Dad, why did you treat the women the way that you treated them? That is so uncool. You are embarrassing to me. See, what we tend to want to do is that we want to absolutize our culture and we want to absolutize our cultural moment. And we want to put that over Scripture and say, it's all, that's so culturally regressive. But you can't ever make the mistake of absolutizing your culture or your cultural moment. Okay? Just because it seems regressive to you doesn't mean that the Bible isn't literal. Right? We don't know which beliefs that we have today will be embarrassing to future generations. Therefore, if you absolutize your culture in the moment in which you live and throw the Bible out because it seems too culturally regressive, you might be missing out on all that a relationship with Christ uh, uh, could mean for you, and you might become a laughingstock in 25 or 50 years. Yes, we can trust the Bible culturally. We need to interpret it literally like we do anything else. We can trust the Bible historically. We can trust the Bible culturally. And then let me give you the last one here, the last and final question. Can I trust the Bible personally? And before I explain it, let me just say, guys, there's so much more I could say about each one of these points. We don't have time for that because I know you do. In spite of what you were going to tell me a little while ago, I know you do have other things that you want to do today other than just listen to me. So there's more I could say, and there's, there's, there's... Tons of resources written on this subject, okay? But I'm just trying to give you some of the things that I think are most important that you need to hear this morning, okay? And I would encourage you, if you have questions about this, go out and research it. I mean, the Bible claims to be the single most important book in all of the world. In fact, it is the only book in all of the world that has the audacity to claim that it is alive. There are great stakes involved in ignoring the Bible. And I would suggest to you that if you have any questions about whether it should be taken literally, whether you can believe, whether it's reliable, uh, I would suggest that you get a copy and you start reading for yourself. Okay. Last question, can I trust the Bible personally? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but I changed the pronoun from a collective we to a personal I because that really is the most important question in all of this. Can I trust it personally with my life? Can you trust it personally with your life? Okay. Some people feel that if you were to accept what the Bible teaches, that it would ruin your life and that it would make your life like a cold legalistic faith, and I get it, I understand why, because every other religion in the world is just like that. 
There's some religious leader who laid out a law, who laid out some code of conduct that you have to follow to be worthy of blessing. In fact, it's not just religious leaders. There's also secular self-motivation speakers that are like this. If you do it this way, if you'll just do this, then uh, you will experience success, right? And they have some rule, some code that you have to follow. People think that the Bible is, is like that. But I think one of the most significant differences between Christianity and any other religion is that the heart of Christianity is a person. It's not a law. At the heart of Christianity is not a law or a code of conduct. Okay, now I told you a little while ago that I'm going to have you uh, turn to Luke chapter 24. So do that. Okay, flip over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Okay. While you're turning there, I'll just give you a little context. Two of Jesus' disciples are walking along, and they're, they're really in sorrow because Jesus has been crucified. And frankly, I think if you, you, know, if you read between the lines, I think you can see that they feel like maybe they've been duped. They thought Jesus was the real thing, the Messiah, but as it turns out, in their minds, they've decided that he's just another David Koresh or some other cult leader. And as they're walking along and they're talking about this together, suddenly a man appears among them. Read from verse 25. This man says to them, How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. By the way, would this not be a passage that you would want to edit out if you were a church leader wanting to just consolidate your power and make yourself look good and build credibility? Would you really want to be one of the people that Jesus said was slow to believe? Okay. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, beginning with the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. Okay, underline those next two words. Concerning himself. Concerning himself. Now, these two guys, they suddenly realize that the person speaking to them is the resurrected Jesus. And after he leaves them, they end up saying to each other, skip down to verse 32, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Did you notice that the text says that Jesus explained to them what the scriptures said about himself? What he's saying is that the Bible's not a code. It's not a bunch of rules, but it's about him. It's about a person. Now listen to me on this, because if you don't understand this, the Bible will crush you. It will crush you. And let me give you a personal uh, example of that. I think maybe I've told you this story before, but you're going to be polite and listen to the story again if I've told it to you before, right? And you're going to act like I've never told it to you, and you're going to go, wow, that's really interesting. Okay, you're going to do that. Thank you. Okay. Okay, here's the story. Many years ago, uh, I was studying Psalm 15. In fact, I will tell you, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I am so embarrassed to tell you this. I was actually preaching a series on Psalm 15. It was many years ago, right? I was a lot younger at the time. A lot hipper and a lot cooler back then, too. Psalm 15 is this psalm that it just begins with this. It asks this question of God at the very beginning. It says, who may dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who can have a relationship with you, God? That's, that's what he's asking. And then it answers the question. And here's some of the things that it says. I can't even go through all of it. It says, the, one who's, the, the man whose walk is blameless, who always does what is righteous, 
who always does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And I'm going to tell you something. As I was preaching this series, that was like a six-week series or something on Psalm 15. I don't know why I was torturing myself like this. But I will tell you, as I, as I studied that psalm, I felt condemned through the whole thing. I felt crushed. Because I'm going to tell you something. None of those things were true of me. I mean, I can tell you not everything I do is righteous. At least back then. Nowadays, more so. No, I'm kidding you. Uh, I, I, okay, this isn't the Jerry Springer show, dude. So we're not, you know... Okay, you understand. All right, I'm just kidding you. You can talk back anytime you want. When Sean Little is speaking, feel free to talk back anytime you want. Okay. Um, but I felt condemned and crushed because none of those things were true of me. I felt, uh, I felt sick. I felt guilty. Uh, I felt shame. And, and I'm going to just be very candid with you about this. Much of my Bible reading and study uh, during that point in my life was like that. During most of my seminary, during most of my early years as a pastor, I felt this sense of guilt, shame, condemnation all the time as I read the Bible. And the reason is because I really didn't understand that all of the Scripture is about Jesus. I mean, I I think I could have told you that like on a test. I could have said that. But in in my heart, in my own mind, as the way I approach the Scriptures, I didn't understand that all of the Scripture is about Jesus. I sort of approach the Scriptures as this is what I'm supposed to do. That's how I approach the scriptures. I didn't understand that it's all about Jesus. Who can dwell on God's holy hill? Who's the only one who's worthy of dwelling on God's holy hill? The only one. Who? It's Jesus. He's the only one. That psalm's about Jesus. It's not about me. If you think the Bible is all about you and all about what you must do, what codes and conducts that you have to follow and how you must live in order to get a blessing from God or to get to heaven or to whatever, then you will be crushed by the Bible's demands. But if you read the Bible as Jesus says to read the Bible here, as a story about him, then you may well find that like the disciples, your heart starts to burn within you too. Who is this person, you may find yourself asking, that this story in the Bible is all about? You may find a longing in your soul that can't be satisfied by anyone but him. Because he was the lamb that was slain at the Passover in the Old Testament, whose blood, it was his blood that was on the doorpost of every Jewish home that kept them from the angel of death. He was the rock in the desert that was smitten by the rod of justice. He was the water in the desert that miraculously slaked their thirst. He was the tabernacle. He was the altar. He was the light. He was the bread. He was the prophet. He was the priest. He was the king. You see, it's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. He's the door in the New Testament. He is the bread of life. He's the lamb at the Passover meal. He is the light. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the Messiah. At the heart of Christianity is a person, not a law, not a code of conduct. A person who lived the life that you could never live, died the death that you deserved, and who claims to be the answer to everything that you have ever longed for in your life. That, my friends, is the literal message of the Bible. And I would just... And I would just close this series by asking this. 
Okay, we've been through six weeks of dealing with all of these things. And as we just close this series and this issue of literalism, I would just ask you this. If you can't trust someone who loved you so much that he willingly died on a cross to rescue you, who can you trust? Who can you trust? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, forgive me for ever looking at the Scriptures as a book that's about me. Forgive me for seeing the Scriptures as a list of of codes and and a list of rules uh, about how I'm supposed to live. Forgive me for my self-centeredness and my narcissism to see the Scriptures in that way. When you have so clearly laid out in Scripture that all of the Scriptures are about you. Lord Jesus, I pray that, pray for the people in this church. And I pray for the people who would be listening to this by our podcast or our app. I, Lord, I pray that in, throughout this series that, that perhaps that we would, through the power of your Spirit, have been able to give them more confidence in the truths of Christianity. And today, more confidence in the Bible and its message. Lord, I pray that there would be many who hear this that would come to a saving relationship with Christ. There are people in this room this morning that think that the good things they've done in their lives somehow commend them to you. Lord, I pray that you would convict them gently, mercifully, through your spirit, that their righteousness, that the things that they think count for righteousness are filthy rags before you, and that your son had to die on the cross for even the most moral acts that they have ever done, for the most righteous prayers that they think that they've ever prayed, for the things that they've been commended by people for doing, that Christ had to die on the cross for those sins. And then, Lord, for those that are here this morning that have things that they're just so ashamed of from their past that they think there's no way that apart from cleaning their life up that you would ever accept them, Lord, would you just gently convict their hearts as well. And that they would be drawn to you. That what you did for them on the cross was sufficient. That you don't ask people to clean up their lives to come to you. That you accept people as they are with all of the things they've done and all the things that they will do in the future you accept people like me just as I am that's a truth that's too hard in some ways for us Lord it's too big for us to get our heads around and our hearts around but I pray that this morning that you would give us just a taste of that enough of a taste that we would long for you Jesus, you are the star, you are the the hero, you are the you're the focus of Christianity we want to uplift you and Lord I pray that every church in Evansville would do that 
Think of my brothers and sisters at One Life this morning, and Lord, I pray that they would exalt Christ, and I know that they do. I pray that they would continue to do that. For our friends at Crossroads Church, I pray, Lord, that pray that you would bless their ministry as they exalt you. Bethel Church, and there's so many others here in the area. We just pray for your blessings upon those churches. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would be drawn to you, that we would sense our hearts burning with a passion to know you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and exalt.